Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Scooter Corkle, a Vancouver writer, director, and cinematographer whose first feature, Hollow in the Land, starred Diana Agron, Sean Ashmore, and Rochelle Lefebvre in a small-town mystery thriller. His new film, The Friendship Game, cast Peyton List as a young woman who finds herself at the center of a reality-warping curse when she and her friends play with a mysterious object they bring home from a garage sale. It's an intriguing spin on a certain kind of horror movie, and it's on digital and on-demand today. Scooter picked Ravenous, the 1999 horror comedy starring Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle as two military men in 1840s California, way up in the Sierra Nevada mountain range, who have both tasted blood and come away with very different opinions about the act. There's a lot more to it, of course, with Pearce and Carlyle playing an elaborate game of Sweaty Cat and Even Sweatier Mouse, with the likes of David Arquette, Neil McDonough, Jeremy Davies, Jeffrey Jones, and John Spencer, all caught in their crossfire. It's eccentric, it's bloody, and it's funny as hell. Look, it's 2023, I thought we'd get the cannibalism out of the way early. You're welcome. This is someone else's movie. I think it's a pretty underrated cult gem of a horror movie. Um, from what I understand, it's a very troubled movie as how it kind of came about, but it just has so many great elements and it's a mixture of genres, I think is really what sort of attracts me to it is that it is a Western and it's a horror movie. Um, and there is this, and, and, and technically it's kind of a, a war movie as well. So it's it's got all of these different things that are sort of mashed together. Um, and those, a lot of the time, are my favorite kind of horror movies, the ones where you cannot just be like, this is a straightforward horror movie. I think I think the ones that really do the multi-hyphenated genre um, are my favorite. So, yeah, this one has always been in my mind, and I've, I haven't had the, the pleasure to talk about it yet. So this is fun. Oh, good. Um, well, when did you first see it? Did you get, the, were you lucky enough to see it in 99 at the time? No, I think I saw it, um, I was in a very small town in 99 and we were watching whatever you know vhs kind of came through at our at our local gas station <laughs> and ravenous didn't make it um i did see blown away at that time which i really loved <laughs> um which also has a great soundtrack but uh yeah i think i saw it when i was in film school um and i was also working at blockbuster video everybody else's film school exactly yeah yeah uh when you do work at blockbuster you get 10 free movie rentals a week so I was just devouring stuff and Ravenous sounded interesting. I love Guy Pierce and I love Robert Carlyle. So I was like, I'll check this out. And I was just blown away. I just, I was like, I instantly was so fascinated with this silly yet gripping movie, you know? Yeah. I had the same experience. I saw it theatrically in, in 99 at a press screen, well, a preview screening cool. and the great giant screen at the Highland uh, with a packed audience of radio contest winners, which was how I saw pretty much every movie. <laughs> That's pretty funny. You uh, submitted to a radio contest all the time? No, no, I was there as a critic. I was there. Oh, I figured, yeah. I'm that makes more sense. But... Did I actually even, re I don't think I actually reviewed it until it came to video, but I went to the press screening, the previous screening was like a Wednesday night, and it was a big, confused crowd. Um, I bet. We loved it. <clears throat> Uh, but there was there was a distinct disconnection in the audience right around the time. Or is it Jeremy Davies or David Arquette who screams he was licking me so enthusiastically? Yeah, that was. Um, uh, that's not David Arquette. What's his name? It's Davies. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course yeah. it is because it's the, you know, the most He's eccentric. Like, hey, yeah, yeah, it's so and good. Some of us just burst out laughing, myself included, and 
I was in 100% on the ride for this. Yeah. And um, a lot of other people just checked out completely and you could feel it. You could just feel the room really, shift. Hey? And it became yeah. this little group of us who were just having fun and everybody else who wanted it to be, I don't know, Evil Dead maybe, uh, or, or something Wendigo-y. Yeah, I think people kind of get an image in their mind of what a movie is going to be. And then once they see it, marketing has so much to do with that too. But once sure. they see it and it doesn't quite line up with how they thought the movie is going to be, I think I think it's tough for them to just see a movie for what it is. Um, I find that a lot, even with my own films, um, is is actually the struggle to actually just be there and be present in whatever is being thrown in front of you. The expectation, I think, does challenge movies a lot um and this one specifically was i think yeah mismarketed supposedly yeah i mean i don't know how you sell it ultimately under <laughs> the, yeah. like, the the theatrical poster was just the sort of indistinct teeth a scream or a growl um, yeah shout factory's blu-ray goes for three heads sort of buried which makes no sense at all but tells you that david arquette became more famous after the fact and that's who they yeah, wanted to foreground like in the movie yeah, yeah and it's like well we can't put jeffrey jones up there anymore so let's uh let's juggle that around but it's it's such an odd film and it's such an immediately eccentric movie i just i remember mm -hmm. hearing the score just twanging around and mm -hmm. realizing this wasn't going to be a straight up anything plus antonia bird as a as a director was such an odd or seemed like such an odd choice until as you mentioned the backstory becomes clear it becomes the, very clear yeah, yeah what happened yeah the really strange thing is that it was originally supposed to be directed by uh, Milcho Manchevsky who is a friend of this podcast who, who did the show like five or six years ago maybe even oh, all the way so back cool. to seven years ago uh yeah he picked Amadeus it's a great episode but I didn't I kept waiting to see if there was going to be an opportunity to ask about ravenous and it just never yeah. happened and we even we went for a walk afterwards we took the dog out and i walked him to the streetcar or maybe he was on his way to his hotel or something and we just i just kept thinking i should ask him i'm missing an opportunity this could be like even off the record i need to know yeah but i just well he did what, what he did like three weeks prep or something he was, around he was in there there to shoot yeah he was he developed it with the screenwriters i think with ted griffin and and at least one yeah. other executive and um shoot now that i think about it david Heyman produced he went on to produce the harry potters i've met him i could have asked him damn could it have asked him too i know the, the producer well, it was also it sounded like it was a battle between mostly execs producers uh versus both directors um, yeah well there were three right because uh there was oh, yeah, there right. was there was manchevsky to start then they brought in raja gosnell or gosnell who was directing home alone sequels and the scooby-doo yeah. movie later on but like just, for a day too right like it wasn't it wasn't like he was fully on for that long no apparently he was driven away by by the conflict by and the then cast. when yeah, yeah and then when bird came on because she was um robert carlisle's production partner in something mm -hmm. else he brought her in and she wrangled it and then later said something to the effect of this was nobody's fault this is none of the nobody who was on the set is at fault and none of the directors were either which mm -hmm. is such a bizarre and specific statement that i yeah just, he I said you to... cannot blame the directors for this movie yeah because something something in that realm yeah. i want to know what it's one of those things where every now and then i'll see a movie that doesn't work and just you know you can tell by the tenor of the performances that everyone is in a different movie or they all have yeah. a different in a different image of what it will be when it comes out. And 
ravenous i think everybody is on the same page because there's this incredible gleeful heightened mania at work mm. but what did the producers think they were getting that like, that's the question it's not what did they think they were making it's what did they want to get yeah that's interesting i think too is you know even dealing with uh again my own films it's like people really like straightforward genre stuff and they love to sell those things like that's so much easier to sell if it's very straightforward the audience knows what they're getting we're going to market it to that so then you know everybody's opinions sort of line up mm -hmm. whereas this movie was you know it's it's funny at times and it is very gory um and most of the movie is just gore <laughs> and then yeah, there's yeah. almost this like sort of like romance between um carlisle and guy pierce going on at the same time it's I don't know. It's again, it's a multi hyphenated movie. And I think that's probably a lot of what the producers are like, what the hell is this movie? It has to be genre. It has to be horror. And we got to force it into that. Um, and yeah, every director sounded like they were pushing back. Yeah. Whereas Pearson and Carlisle are absolutely doing the, how can I even put it? This, this, the, a homoerotic cannibal picture, which <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, you don't see every day, but, yeah. but that wonderful moment early on, even before, before the real story is revealed, there's that great, I, I was just blindsided by how gentle it is. The moment on the, on the top of the, the cliff in the past where, um, where Pierce is just like Boyd is quietly inquiring. Like when you, when you ate the, the men, did you, did it increase your, virility like he comes up to that word yeah. so delicately and carefully and it's such a great choice doesn't, to... doesn't carlisle say it doesn't pierce say like did you change or something oh, that's right. and then he, um, maybe and carlisle gives him like i felt more virile says, or yeah, something he like fill, that he fills it in he does that's right yeah. um stronger how stronger how exactly and and it's just such an odd <laughs> delicate moment just before everything go and then like moments later somebody pitches off the cliff and everything goes to hell but it, it is there is another movie in there there's a there is a, absolutely mm -hmm. a story that these actors and that director are aware of uh which i suspect made the audience incredibly uncomfortable as well um, yeah completely it, cause, yeah because 22 years i mean this is what is it bones and all is 23 years later and that yeah. makes that makes the idea of consumption i mean trouble every day hadn't even happened yet there, there's a great line. One of, was Alive, because Alive was yeah. another, but a very different cannibal movie. Though. Yeah, that was 92, yeah. but there's absolutely no homoeroticism in that one. Yeah. Uh, although there is really funny, when I when I did um, look up the movie, all the recommended movies after were, were always Alive. <laughs> as though you're, you're, you're on like a cannibal tirade, you know, like your, your genre of choice currently is cannibal for some reason. <laughs> They're like, we're not even going to give you a horror movie. We're literally just going to give you Alive, where people eat each other to survive. It's so funny. <laughs> so funny. Just a shrug from the, the algorithm. Exactly. Uh, you yeah. might also enjoy, uh, you know what? Yeah. The, the, the cannibal picture has always had a rough line um mm -hmm. and, you know like people are so repulsed by it the the this this primal taboo but what are you going to a horror movie for and what and certainly what are you going to a movie called ravenous for if you don't expect mm -hmm. somebody's going to get chomped on yeah ravenized right, if that's a word yeah, it is now <laughs> but you're right the the level of gore in it is and it is just a constant flow of yeah of blood and meat and it's I mean, it's great. I, I think about other films like 
Parents, which is the the other great cannibal film of the eighties that mm. no one no one seems to remember. Just I actually don't know that one. Yeah. Okay, so Bob Balaban directed it, which is one reason it's a curio. Yeah, but it's about it's probably awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's about it. It is. It's great. It, the whole film is told from the perspective of a little boy in nineteen fifties America who comes to suspect that his parents are eating people, and right. just because they're serving him what look a lot like smoked meat sandwiches, which they never identify, and it's it's Randy Quaid and Mary Beth Hurt. Oh. And they're perfectly cast and completely innocuous and just sinister enough in the in the frame. And then there's just an, mm-hmm. enough of a grin. That the, you know, Randy Quaid is amazing at grinning a little too wide. And they refuse to identify what the food is. And it's never stated explicitly. And it may just have something to do with the kid entering puberty and not understanding how sex works and being afraid of his body and, and the idea okay. of being of exposing his flesh to another. And there's this, just this, this wonderful moment where um, he asks his parents, the little boy asks his parents what, what, left, what, this, what this is if it's not leftovers. And someone says it's leftovers to be. And it's just <laughs> so uncanny and wrong and weird. Not a drop of blood, though. That's what's amazing about it. The, the, the sandwiches are always just very clearly prepared and composed and clean. And do you never and really know that they're eating or not eating it's, people? I think they are, but it's pretty, it's ambivalent or ambiguous. Yeah. You can, you can, you can believe that they're not. Uh, right. And also now it feels like a sort of a companion piece to Blue Velvet and, and the, the Lynchian suburbia where everything is just too mm. good to be true. Right. There's always some sort of dark shadow looming in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's in this case, it's America. Um, I th- I'm, it's been a long time since I've seen the film, but I remember very vividly this this idea that dad, I don't think the characters even have names. It's just mom and dad. Uh, but dad works for some sort of government project that's working on, I think, Agent Orange specifically, but pesticides in general and just mm-hmm. whatever it is, it's a, it's a killing thing. And so that just leads into how good he is at everything else that's dark and awful and how this, again, the little boy is just becoming aware of all of these things. It's, um, it's really, really clever. Yeah. Th- thematically, it sounds really clever. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it's back out on Blu-ray of all things. Uh, Lionsgate releases this little line of Vestron video classics from the eighties and nineties. And it's in there along with Lair of the White Worm and Cronenberg Shivers. That's the seventies. But it's it's come back, and I'm hoping people hmm. discover it because it is so damn strange. But yeah, but let's it check is, that out. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I'm excited. Yeah. And it, it is the genteel, you know, older cousin to something like Ravenous, which is basically just a Tasmanian devil dropped in the middle of, of this uh, very staid 19th century propriety mm-hmm. um, where <laughs> it just goes absolutely bananas in the yeah in the I, I actually forgot how many people die and how quickly that happens it's like everybody by the I mean, almost everyone does it's almost it's almost everybody by not even halfway you know like basically everybody's died basically halfway through and then the romance starts like <laughs> properly right. starts you know i i do love the sort of mexican-american war too that's that's playing on in the background um and this idea of hierarchy and um, just somebody who's a coward who doesn't belong, who has to sort of like, I love a movie that does feature a coward as their lead, right. um, who has to like learn to have some form of uh, he- heroism to them, you know, <laughs> like they got to figure out that some some part of them isn't such a coward. Uh, I do love those kind of films. But um, yeah, I love surrounding it in that era, because it's, it could 
potentially work as almost any war. Mm-hmm. Um, but because there's, you know, discovering the West and um, this idea of uh, living up in the mountains, trying to just guide people or save people in the winter. Like it's a fort in the middle of the winter, like nobody's coming. <laughs> you know, and There's just a small detachment of people up there. I mean, it's a great, it's almost contained in that way like a contained Western, which is also very fascinating and a fun, a fun ride, I think. Yeah. And this is before every movie set in wintertime invoked the thing, although this one does, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because of con- the, the fear of contamination in the sense that you can be corrupted by the, um, the, I mean, really Boyd's own history is that he was accidentally cannibalized. He be uh, ravenized. He he has he has consumed flesh and doesn't like it, isn't happy about mm. it, but it has it has left him with I, and you can argue of course that this is also a homoerotic undertone because it's someone who has done something, enjoyed it and been disgusted and shamed by it. So mm-hmm. certainly in the 19th century that's that is a, a a lot of this, you know. We're not we're not fully in Beautreville world yet. Although, mm-hmm. again, like Claire Denise is making trouble every day in the other room, practically at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you have the the conflict that runs through the entire film is not that Carlyle's character wants to eat him; it's that he wants him to join him in eating other people, and that's where the yeah. the push pull of it becomes so fascinating. Like, it is fascinating because it's it's a it's a bad guy in a very different light. Like it is, it's a, it's trying to be a companion instead of sort of your, and, and probably another part of the genre piece is like your antagonist here isn't trying to kill um, your protagonist. Right. They're literally trying to make love to them in a, in a different way. You know what I mean? Um, and trying to have them join them, trying to be a couple. Um, a murderous couple that can survive and become infinitely powerful, you know, and there's, there's something interesting about that as well, which does fall out of the trope of what horror movies are, which again, is probably why people have had sort of mixed reviews with it. It's not very straightforward. Yeah, I mean, it is the Anne Rice model, which was hugely popular at the time Mm. of of seduction into corruption. But Mm -hmm. yeah, you, you dress it up as a Western and give it a twangy score and people don't know how to digest it. There's just, you yeah. know, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the gorgeous sort of high art wardrobe of, and, and set dressing of Neil Jordan movies. It's messy and ugly and nasty and there's stuff under mm-hmm. everybody's fingernails and it's stuff that probably used to be someone else's fingers. Yeah. Which is funny too. I think some of the feedback that um, Antonio was getting from executives were that they were too dirty. <laughs> like just when when they got rushes back, that was sort of some of the things they were saying was like everybody's too too much dirt on the costumes and and too much dirt on their teeth and all that kind of stuff. Again, just questioning what kind of movie they thought they were making. Yeah, it's set in the eighteen forties. <laughs> I suppose yeah. hygiene is at a premium. I mean, if you're in the middle of the woods, you know, probably not. Mm. But. uh but it was still, I think because it's still under sort of a Hollywood banner, like a, like a Fox banner, um, Fox 2000, they were still trying to create a little bit of a polish, like a Hollywood polish. Sure. Yeah. And probably thought that that's what was going to sell it was also, you've got a babe in Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle and like trying to sell them to the ladies. Maybe, I don't know what they were thinking because it is a, a (laughs) animal movie, but still, 
Um, a very rough take on the Donner Party. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I do feel like the the Hollywood misconception in that in that case is probably where a lot of those notes were coming. There were I don't know what other movies would have came out around that time where they had very sort of attractive 1840s men um, that they were trying to sell to people. I don't know. It's all about sales, and I don't really know what their their sales minds were going for. You know? Yeah. The only point of comparison I can make is that the Jane Austen wave had just started. So you're seeing, you know, mm. late 18th century characters on estates. Mansfield Park is happening. Emma was already out. But these are not those. I mean, I guess- These are you, not those, yeah. Yeah. Ewan McGregor is in the Miramax Emma, and Carlisle is in Train Spotting with McGregor. So maybe they thought it would carry over, but it just, it doesn't. I don't doesn't. know how they think, you yeah, know? There's, there's no way this, there's no clean version of this movie. Or if there is, it's a terrible version. Well, even just hiring, originally hiring, uh, Manchevsky is like, this would have been his second feature, right? After Before the Rain, yeah. Yeah, and Before the Rain was like a Venice winner, Venice film winner, like was a very art house movie. And then you kind of bring on this art house guy and try and force him into making a genre movie that potentially didn't want to make. It's just so backwards. Yeah. It just feels like such a backwards way to make a film. Or at least to control a film from the perspective of a studio. Yeah. And there's no way, I mean, it's true. There's no way to make this a mass market success, but also the amazing thing about it is that the matrix is a week away and it's going to render everything pointless. Right. I think I saw the matrix the very next day or the day after at a, no, it was a Saturday. So it was a midnight screening, but it was the same week. Mm. The, the experience of seeing them back to back is like, Oh my God, like anything is possible. 1999 is going to change everything. And it, I think it turns out that it did. It was, a revolutionary year. What, 97 to like 2002 maybe or something was sort of like a real golden age of original content that wasn't like based now, on yeah. an IP, you know, that that didn't have an IP. Everything was an original screenplay. There was just, um, people were really taking some chances. There was still money sort of being spent on taking these sort of chances. Like when you look back at that era, there's just so many great films um, that still hold up even now and mostly from the originality of the actual story. Because um, it is, it's not based on IPs. They're based on somebody's brain who are writing a novel that then ends up on screen, more or less. You know, not an actual novel, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. I do. Well, I think I have this this tight five on DVD destroying the mid-range movie experience uh, because by like 2002, everybody had upgraded to DVD players and HDTVs were starting to come in and People just became convinced that if it wasn't a blockbuster, they could wait for it. And mm -hmm. and also the, the release window was collapsing for home video. So you could, you know, it would be five months, six months. It'll come along. Whatever it is, it's 2003 that you want to see. But if it isn't a giant blockbuster, well, you can buy a DVD for 30 bucks. I can wait. We could even rent it for four bucks if we wait longer. And yeah. that that just killed anything that wasn't gargantuan, anything that didn't mm -hmm. justify the ticket price. And in the late 90s, every other movie was a mid-range movie, probably more so because blockbusters were so tricky and difficult. And you know, everybody thought The Mummy was going to be a bomb right up until it opened. Yeah. yeah and yeah. Um, so you have you know, post-Titanic after 97, you've got everybody chasing these gargantuan epics and splintering off all the other production with Fox Searchlight and Fox 2000 and Paramount Vantage, all these art house labels that were springing up, all these boutiques that were 
serving the smaller audiences, but those audiences were still turning out. And so, yeah, you mm -hmm. could get a movie like this and have 20th Century Fox think opening it wide would be a really great idea. Yeah, totally. In March. It is, yeah, it is, it is an interesting era for that too, because it is in the transition, so much in the transition point where things are getting too expensive and people aren't really going to films anymore. But these smaller movies, quote, smaller movies right. that are still mid-range are bringing people to the theater and they are bringing people out and they are becoming these huge splashes and the Oscars mean a lot. And like the marketing meant so much during that time just to get people's eyeballs um, onto films mm -hmm. and then comparing that just to just a few years later, you're right. It was just, it was kind of the era we're in now, which was big blockbusters and then a lot of DVD sales. And now we're only, you know, streaming and doing those sort of things now, but. Yeah. It's fragmented even further, which is incredibly disheartening. Uh, now that you're watching, you know, things being disappeared from Netflix and HBO max with no physical analog where there's no way yeah. to get these shows that are disappearing or these movies that just aren't They'll being be gone released. forever you know yeah. yeah yeah hey it's norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest shiny things newsletter my twice weekly dispatch about physical media culture and the odd streaming thing I just spent the last week rounding up my favorite 4k and blu-ray releases of 2022 and I still managed to save one for this week Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, if I don't write about movies, I'll probably die. Do you want that on your conscience? Come check it out. It's on Disney Plus in Canada, which I find absolutely I know, it's just hysterical. so fucking funny. Sorry for yeah. swearing, but No, yeah. that's fine. People will expect it from this movie. Um... <laughs> So the first swear this whole time, though, no, that's not Oh, bad. that's true. He did okay. But it, it is so perverse to have it floating around up there, even though it's in the, like the grown-up stars tier, and you can, if you have kids, you can turn it off, and you'll never know it's there. But I took a look at it just for a couple of minutes just to see, just to check something, actually, a line of dialogue, and it looks grubby. I think mm -hmm. I don't think there is a clean version, and even a, a proper mm -hmm. remaster. The Shout Factory disc is not, well, it was criticized anyway by... Some reviewers said that it was too bright, that it showed you too much. I remember it being pretty bright theatrically. There's not a lot of you, yeah. real darkness in the film. Um, Bird really seems to like the sunblasted aspects of being on top of mountains. Like the daylight scenes are really quite beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then the night scenes are very, very well lit. They know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the people who don't like it were objecting to their memory of the DVD or the VHS tapes, which were not mastered terribly well, because it was early days for DVD and VHS was always going to look terrible. And there's a lot of darkness. And every yeah. time you have like really deep blacks, like oh, they, DVDs they just cannot handle it. They just turn crunch. into noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Blu-ray, I, I had the experience of watching the 4K edition of Silent Running a couple of weeks ago, and it's actually too good. It's too detailed. It reveals all the effects. Yeah. Um, the Blu-ray of Ravenous looks great to my eye. Disney Plus looks a little noisy, but I think that's really more about compression. But the idea that people can stumble on this on Disney is hysterically funny to me. That just that was sort of even what made me think about this film was because I was on Disney and I was like, oh shit, Ravenous is here. And for two years in a row, I've been trying to convince our our you know Halloween group to watch Ravenous as oh, yeah. part of our group. We always end up watching something a little more campy than that. But um this was sort of a perfect opportunity to rewatch it. 
uh, and knowing that it was on Disney is really funny. I think I bought it on Apple or whatever. Mm. Um, but still, and there still is con- uh, compression on that, uh, which is interesting. Now I want to see the Blu-ray. Really, really do want to see the Blu-ray. I think it's still in print. You should be able to find it easily. Um, okay. It is. It's a little treasure, uh, and it's got all the extras from the DVD, which is really great—the commentary tracks and everything. Because um, mm. I think there were, th- yeah, there were three. There's one where it's just Carlisle on his own. There's another one with Antonia Bird and Damon Albarn. That's a lot of fun. I remember. Oh wow! And it's just, again, you look back at this and realize it wasn't expensive. I think um, Wikipedia says the budget is $12 million. I don't know if that includes mm-hmm. all the pre-production for the various other versions, but it probably does because it wasn't terribly, it was a, a hard, complicated shoot, but it doesn't look like it was terribly costly. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's got one costume. And, you know, like the, yeah. biggest, the biggest expense is the makeup yeah. and most of that's just blood. And makeup effects. Yeah, that's really, and even that you're not seeing, you know, a lot of the time somebody's getting stabbed in the stomach you know, with a knife and you're not seeing the stab go in or anything like that. So it is mm-hmm. really reaction and somebody spitting up blood. Um, that's really doing it until, and even with the cooking stuff, you're cooking up meat. You're yeah, not it seeing it be. get carved off of a body. You're just seeing it cooked now. Exactly. You know, it it's now anything. a stew. So it could be anything. Yeah. Know? Oh, the lighting on that stuff. That, I mean, that's, that's what I keep coming back to how much fun this feels like it was. And it probably wasn't oh, I know. because it sounds like a miserable shoot, but it looks gleeful. Yeah. Everybody I know, is... especially like how many people died. You know, just like um when Guy Pierce rolls down the mountain. Like that whole sequence of jumping off the cliff, hitting the tree and just rolling down the mountain and then uh I forget the actor's name who's hanging upside down. Was it Neil McDonough the blonde? Yes, guy? yes it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's insane in this movie. Um was barely in it but is just you you're fearful of him from the very from from the word go. Oh yeah, he registers. Yeah. And the fact that like when they roll and he's hanging upside down, just all of a sudden his bloodlust kicks in and he's like, before I die, I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> and then he just goes for him. They're like, oh, it's so funny. That's so good. And it's a nice moment. It's just another nice beat. There's just a beat and a beat and a beat and a beat. And all of a sudden, yeah, somebody needs to get eaten, you know? <laughs> yeah. You hit a certain point in time. It's, um, it's a necessary, it's a requirement of the genre, really. Yeah, the cannibal genre. Yeah, exactly. You just like a lot of people get eaten. <laughs> just oh, surprised. Yeah. I totally forgot how many people get eaten. <laughs> That's a great pull quote for it too. <laughs> I, I I don't want to pivot to your own. I mean, we will talk about the friendship game and, and mm-hmm. the, the very very clean way you handle horror, which I find an interesting contrast to to Ravenous because the, the cinematography in the friendship game is all you know very sharp lines and and clear physical distinctions, even when things are messy narratively. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to, I don't want to leave out the sheer joy of watching Robert Carlyle in this movie. Um, oh, I know. Smiling with the blood on his teeth at the top of the mountain. He knows what, what he's do? doing. He's so good at that. So controlled. Yeah. And they find, yeah, I, I really did think um, when I heard the pitch for the film that it just sounded like a, a, like Begbie from Trainspotting, but with cannibalism. And mm-hmm. the way that he and Bird trick us into not thinking about that by having him play a panicky survivor. I mean, it's an old trick. It's, you know, straight out of at least two different Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. But <laughs> having him show up and be the, the panicky survivor who is, of course, truly orchestrating the entire thing. 
it gives us the reveal. It lets us, you know, it gives us the the pleasure of watching the Begbie come out and mm-hmm. and in now in a new context and be a different, entirely different character. They are separate performances, but there is something. There's like three performances. Of That's, true. In there. That's true. Yeah, because he does. He climbs into Begbie for a little bit, goes insane. But then he's like perfectly controlled. I'm a captain of the army. Um, and now I'm just going to psychologically twist Guy Pierce, you know, and there's, there's definitely like three very distinct versions of Calhoun for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and he knows exactly which one he's in at any given moment. Like you can see him shifting gears. You can see him pulling back and just, again, it's fun. It's, it's so much fun to watch doom come to these people because yeah. doom is so charming and doom yeah. is having the best time. I know. And he, yeah, like this, again, just the way that he's able to throw a grin at you, Um, just the smallest little grin. And there's just so much meaning and so much like bloodlust. Even you as a, as an audience, you're like, I'm feeling bloodlust. Do it. Go Carlisle, go. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Give me what I want. Come on, let's do it. And then he does. You're absolutely rooting for the bad guy in the, the entire film. It's, and maybe that's the problem is that. In the in the You're rooting for a cannibal. <laughs> well, in the other reading where we're supposed to be on Boyd's side because he's mm. the hero and he's been established as the hero, we should be rooting for him to embrace his darkness. But Pierce is so convincing as someone who's utterly repressed and incapable of embracing anything about himself, whether mm-hmm. it's his hunger or any other hunger that you might be reading in, that Carlyle just becomes so much more fun. And it's it's the Lestat-Lewis problem from Interview with the Vampire, right? Like, Lestat's a prick, but he's the guy who's enjoying himself. Yeah, at least he's the one we're on the, the journey with, you know? Because mm-hmm. it is it is that conversation, you know, not to get too technical, but just around, you know, your active protagonist, mm-hmm. um, which is something screenwriting 101 style. But the Boyd character isn't that active. Like, everything is happening to him and eventually he has to take some action by the end. But for the most part, Carlisle definitely leads that whole journey. Like the whole narrative is really in Calhoun's pocket. Um, so it is It is also interesting that like your antagonist, who also just wants him to join his club, um, is the one you're rooting for the whole the whole way through and literally kills and eats people. So there is, there is like, it's a really sort of challenging version of that character. And I, I love that. I really, truly love that. Yeah. I mean, the conflict in the film is with between the film and the audience, too. It's the, come on, isn't this great? Look at this guy. Look how much fun he's having. Don't you want to play with him? It's like, I yeah, guess. Don't you want to be immortal? Don't yeah. you want to do this? You could do this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not vampirism where you have to drink the blood and there's no other way. You can prepare stuff. You can use seasoning. Like You don't have to. Yeah. It doesn't your, yeah, just exactly. have to taste like yeah. blood. Yeah. It can be in a stew that everybody else eats and it's like, mm, this is delicious. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's actually, that's the, the movie that everybody thought the menu was going to be where you know, oh, it's yeah. all I about, seen the menu. Yeah. Uh, it's not about cannibalism, which is fun. Uh, it's something else entirely. It's kind of a one joke movie, but it's a really good joke and it's played very well, mm. but it reveals itself fairly quickly, which I think is, is great because the trailer seems to tease a completely different film. Okay, I'm more um, interested to see it now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Finding out that that's not what's at play is actually helpful. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to something like Fresh, where there's really only one place this goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, like it's not necessarily a bad place, but it is the movie that it 
tells you it's going to be. Whereas, yeah, I, I just like something that doesn't do that. A movie that that plays fair, but also has a curve. Ravenous, absolutely. 20 minutes in, it's like, oh, this is not the film I thought it was. Maybe even five minutes in, it's not the movie I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think there's probably one thing we haven't talked about yet. Shoot. We would be remiss to not mention the soundtrack. Yes, um, that's right. We didn't. We, I just teased it up at the beginning. Yeah, and it is, and it is so worth it. I think a lot of people who don't really enjoy the film uh, love the soundtrack, and I think for good reason. Like it is Michael Nyman. Yeah, and, and Damon uh, Albarn and Dam- Damon Albarn from yeah Blur and the Gorillas. And I remember listening to Damon sort of talk about it and how you know it's played um, off tune and it's played. Um, off time as well in order to sort of tweak the audience's feeling like they never wanted to make them feel grounded and part of that is so exciting with how they were able to do the the actual soundtrack Um, by actually you know playing off tune and off time is so interesting it's such a neat way to do it yeah it gave me the sense of a of traveling musicians who got lost in the snow themselves. I don't know why exactly, but it just sounds, it's like the dying carousel music in Boogie Nights. Yeah. It's something is, something is wrong. Something is, is like inherently awry with this music. Mm -hmm. And it's also incredibly catchy. Like it may be out of time, but it sounds great. It's just fun to listen to. Even the like where it goes like like that's all at a time, but it works perfectly with the you know the the banjo that kicks in and the um the accordion or whatever the hell they're playing there. Yeah, I think it might even be a harmonium. harmonium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's just it's it's incredible. And then they get into like full chants and like really deep choir stuff um, that is so repetitive, but the the repetition of it makes those moments even more frightening. Um, I just think the soundtrack is unique. It's cool. It's scary when it needs to be. And it still has, it still plays within that Western genre. And it and it makes that stuff a little bit lighter, which is also cool. Yeah, it's a tonal guide as well to the, to the narrative, to the heart of the film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's I'm a sure- chance too. Like they really took a chance with that sound. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure it did not go well with the executives who wanted a conventional anything, but <laughs> exactly. I think it's, I think it's the part of the film that survives the most. I mean, I still hear it turn up here and there. People use it in trailers sometimes. And mm-hmm. uh, I've heard it played, I've, I've heard it on a classical radio station here that has a, a section of film music every now and then. Okay. Uh, my mother-in-law listens to, um, I think it's 96.3 and it showed up once right after E.T., which struck me as so bizarre. There, there was the chase theme from E.T. and then this. Yeah, and was it like the chase, like on the mountain sort of I think chase? so, yeah. It was the yeah. one where it gets very, very vivid, but also you know, it's busy and active, but it's also the closest the film comes to classical. Yeah. As opposed where to the Nyman of, really took over. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the acoustic thing that Auburn's doing. What a pairing to those two. It is so strange. Yeah. I still don't even understand how they got them in the same room. I mean, they must have just been in I this. Know. They must have both been at Abbey Road for something, I guess. Well, and they just yeah, tricked them. Because Nyman's like an opera guy. Like he has written multiple very huge award-winning operas. Um, and then did Gattaca, I think, before this one, which is also a great soundtrack, but a very Yeah, classical. he'd been working with uh, Peter Greenaway for 
a good decade and a half. I think I think he scored the draftsman's contract, which would have been or even drowned. I know he did drowning my notes. He'd sure. been working with him. Um, he broke out really with um, the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover with that score. But he mm-hmm. they'd been collaborating for yeah, I think all the way back to eighty two. They'd been working together. And it's so it's so interesting too, because like he also did the piano, Jane Campion's piano. Mm-hmm. Um, and then packaging that with um Cochran with uh, Damon Alburn, who's like a at this point hasn't really done too many musical soundtrack stuff, and he's really only really been doing blur. Um, it's just like how did they know each other? How did this come about? I don't really know, but um it's a neat it's a neat grouping of two people or three people at times um, to make something so original and so outlandish in just why they were brought together. I don't know. It's, it's, it's brilliant on Antonio's, Antonio's part for sure. And it makes the film feel even more unique because nothing like this was ever attempted again. Not, mm-hmm. I mean, there's Philip Glass's score for Candyman seven years earlier. Yeah. That's probably as close as you get to a genuinely radical interpretation of music for a horror film. And then yeah. this, and then, Everything gets very conventional again. It does, yeah. Until something like, you know, Good Time, when you get uh, One O Tricks. I can I can never pronounce his name, but when you get that crazy soundtrack, and it's so good, that soundtrack. But now everybody's sort of, you know, Flying Lotus is doing soundtracks, and um, uh, who else was doing something recently? I can't, I can't remember, but there's a lot of these sort of uh, electronic industrial artists that are now doing movie soundtracks, and it's almost the cool thing to do is only grab those folk. Right. Oh, the Junkie um, XL is doing scores for uh, George Miller. That's oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. That's funny. Yeah. Well, it's uh, neat. Yeah. It is. And it's it just, again, it's like this general expansion of the possibility mm-hmm. of a genre or of cinema itself where you can just play with things, um, which kind of gets me to the narrative trickery that you're pulling in the friendship game where mm-hmm. I can see people even 10 years ago just getting lost but now it feels like we have the language for what you do in the in the middle section of the film but mm-hmm. there's even a sort of a jump cut really early on into something completely different once the story chapters start dropping uh and it's up to us to figure out where we are and and i don't want to get into spoiler territory obviously but that becomes a part of what the film is doing as opposed yeah. to something that was created you know accidentally through a script that just sort of got scrambled after the fact this feels like it was very calculated yeah we did i mean it's a cyclical format that we play with until we get to the house so we kind of get each person's without getting too deep into spoiler territory but we get different perspectives on um, specific moments and all those specific moments do have a through thread with our lead character with zuza because she's the only one that really transfers through all the different cyclical formats um but yeah, all of that stuff, it's funny too, because that stuff was built um, in a more linear fashion. And then once we started sort of discovering the movie a little bit more in post, we then did reshoots to make sure that all that stuff would work. So we did, we planned it and didn't plan it at the same time. And then sort of, uh, we did a lot of sort of, not not necessarily rewriting in post, but at least recrafting in post. Um, and we were lucky enough, not not a lot of indie films get to, but we were lucky enough to have some reshoots and to do some reshoots because it is a, it's a, it's a weird narrative in that, in that sense. It's not necessarily weird, but it is purposely built to be a little bit confusing. So the audience has to spend time being active in the journey and trying to figure it out and, and be on the journey with us. 
um, that was definitely like an intention that that took a lot to find as well in post as much as it did in, in shooting. Yeah. How do you, how do you thread that needle? How do you keep people, how do you put enough out there to keep people engaged while making it coherent? Because th mm -hmm. the thing that you're doing, and again, I don't want to get into the, the technical specifics because I don't want people, I want people to be able to discover it as they see it. But yeah. the thing that you're doing is really tricky mm -hmm. and you could, easily tip your hand if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. I think the main, the main way to do it is for us anyways, the main thinking there was to keep the, um, sort of the emotional narrative, uh, the emotional arc as Zusa. Mm -hmm. So you have something as an audience, you have something to hold on to. So no matter how wild and crazy the sort of timeline gets and the alternate universe stuff that we're playing with and the visions and the dreams and all those sort of things that are happening, you've got this narrative thread this emotional thread of our lead character that you're holding on for the ride. Um, and she ends up being beginning to end the one thing that really kind of ties the room together. <laughs> yeah, she, yeah. she is the carpet. Um, and that was, I think the, the one thing that we had to be mindful of when we, when we started to play, cause we did play a lot. Uh, we had a lot of fun playing with how timelines work and how much information we're giving people and what to hold and what not to hold. So yeah, I think that was our, our main thread we needed to concentrate on. I am loving this new boom of quasi-surrealist horror cinema, where it's not even horror necessarily, but the genre is sort of expanding outwards. I'm thinking of you know, something like Come True or Tin Can, which is, which is more hmm. science fictional, but still has enough horror elements that they're grounding, they're completely relatable, and yet at the same time, you can just have these surrealistic passages where anything is possible. And as long as it fits into the theme or the tone of the, of the larger story, it plays. Yeah. And because so many other movies have been able to do it kind of to your point earlier, that language is already in an audience's head. They sort mm -hmm. of can understand it. They can get on board pretty easily. Um, and then it's really pushing them to, you know, you give them what, what they expect, you give them an expectation and then take away that expectation. Be like, actually, no, this is what the movie is. And then when they're there, they're like, oh, that's what the movie is. You're like, nope, here's what the movie is, you know? And it, and it is part of that fascination for me with the multi-hyphenated genre movie. Because it is, you know, this movie is a cosmic horror movie. Um, but it is, it is a horror movie and it's cosmic at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also, I think, at times just a thriller. So there are these multi-hyphenated genre elements that are at play. Um, and you really commit to the genre at one point and then at other points you know i just want to i want to talk about the character right now i want people to see why the person's making the choices they're making well and to that end to the to the genre mashup aspect of it is there anything from ravenous that you directly lifted or borrowed or stole or homaged in constructing the friendship game i can't um, think of anything but if there is nothing visually i don't think visually um i think musically we did I think at times our, our composers were Blitz Berlin. Mm -hmm. um, they're in Toronto and in Vancouver. They're a Canadian band is where they started. And then they started doing some really cool um, soundtracks. Um, they have a piece on The Void, which is another cosmic horror movie, um, as well as doing Psycho Gorman. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, they did the whole soundtrack for that. And they were fan. doing, yeah, and they were doing uh, trailers and short films for the the Blade Runner. Um, 
multi short films. So they were they were actually working oh, yeah, in that yeah. realm, which is really cool. But I think what we tried to do with uh, the music was to destabilize people a little bit and try and play things a little bit longer than we should um, and have instrumentation that really kind of gets under your skin. Like it's not necessarily that true classic driving beat when you want a driving beat. We're trying to play something a little more melodic mm-hmm. underneath some of that stuff um, and trying to, again, keep the audience off balance. Everything about this movie is about keeping the audience off balance because we do want to make them as active as possible. So I, w- I would say musically, maybe, maybe is really the only thing that we could have referenced for sure. Just nobody having a big bowl of stew in the background of a shot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think they eat once. I think there's like eating eggs once. That's about it though. Yeah. My thanks to Scooter Corkle, whose new movie, The Friendship Game, is on digital and on demand in Canada as of right now. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Scooter on Twitter at Scooter Corkle, although he hasn't used the account in a couple of years, and you can find Ravenous in that nice Blu-ray special edition I mentioned from Shout Factory and on an old DVD from 20th Century Fox Home Entertainment. It's also streaming on Disney Plus in Canada and on the Criterion Channel in Canada and the US, and available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.